Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Well, we come to chapter 13. This is what you heard. It's called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse because it happens on the Mount of Olives. And it's the longest teaching of Jesus in Mark, and uh, especially in Mark, although Mark has two long narrations of Jesus' teachings. Mark 4, remember the emphasis there was on hearing and the sowing of the seed. Remember, you hear it. And then here in chapter 13, the longest section has to do with watching, being alert, seeing. So, uh, now... It's the most difficult of the Gospels to interpret. All three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, have these passages, this, the Olivet Discourse. Of course, it relates to the end. You could see, you could hear the eschatology of the study of last things. I have thought about, uh, someone brought up maybe the suggestion, because I was explaining on our programming team, just how hard uh, uh, Mark 13 is, that, you know, maybe we should do what elevators do and skip 13 and go right to 14. That would speed up Mark. And, uh, and the reason that it is uh, difficult, of course, there's been more ink spilled on these texts than anything else in the Gospels. So there's so much scholarly data on it. Uh, and it's so diverse that the material is just intimidating. And so I've noticed a lot of pastors, because I've gone on to try to find sermons on it. There's just not that many. You just want to, you just, if you don't have to, you just don't want to dive into it. Uh, so um, about two summers ago, I, I started to dive into it. So I've been in Mark 13 a lot longer than, uh, than up to this point. So, uh, so it has been in my mind and heart for a long time. Let me tell you uh, why one of the reasons it's difficult. The, one of the reasons is, is you've got narrative, is the genre itself. And you'll see as we go through this, the difficulties. And of course, I'm just going to introduce it and you're going to just see just a couple of verses this morning. And then we'll uh, divide up the chapter as needed. Uh, but I want you to see there's, it's a narrative framework, of course, because we're in the gospel narrative. Uh, so we're in story. So within the story comes exhortation. And there is like 25 second person plural verbs. So the disciples are exhorted. This, the, far vast majority of this text, they're exhorted. There's 13 second person personal pronouns. There's 19 imperatives. So, I mean, you're being told something in this text and that's why it can't be skipped. You've got to hear what he's trying to say to you. And there's a clear message coming through, even though what is what you heard, some of it is hard to put together. There's still some clear message in there that's got to be heard. 
All right? So the prophecy part is really important. When you get to prophetic or prophetic, prophetic genre, you've got to remember what you're dealing with because the difficult issues within the text can often be explained by the fact that the genre is prophetic, and you've got to understand that. When we're dealing with prophetic genre, you're talking about near and far events being brought together. And when you do that, some of the gaps don't get filled in. It's just sort of the nature of that. And you've got to keep it in mind or you'll make mistakes going through the chapter. Uh, there's not always precise temporal uh, um, markers. So you're not really sure all the time what's in there. There's, the precision isn't there. So you'll beg for gaps to be filled. But you've got to understand you're imperfect. C.S. Lewis, just in case you're wondering, uh, which you probably weren't wondering, but, uh, but C.S. Lewis called this one particular verse in here the most embarrassing verse in all the Bible. And he said it's the one place Jesus was wrong. That gives you a little bit of feel about the weight of this text. I don't think C.S. Lewis is right. And you'll probably never hear me say that again. Oh, maybe. Nobody's right all the time. But had he understood that this was prophetic discourse, had he understood the genre a little better, he might not have said what he said. So it's important to understand that prophecy. The other thing about the text is some apocalyptic. It's not full apocalyptic. It's not revelation. When we talk, what's the difference between prophecy and apocalyptic genre? Apocalyptic genre describes the inbreaking of the supernatural into history and reality. So when you hear the sun turn red, or it got, or, or the sun went out and darkness appeared, and angels started showing up and flying around, and things like that happened, that's the supernatural breaking into history. That's apocalyptic language. So you know Revelation's filled with it. Well, you get a little bit of it here. Not in its totality, but a little bit. Uh, so when you put all these three genres together, you've got to really got to remember that as you're trying to understand it. And, of course, there is tons of Old Testament allusions that you've got to account for, too. Are you getting the feel of why I was scared, why I'm a little scared? The challenge, then is to bring all these into right balance, okay? Uh, so that we as a congregation learn what Mark wanted us to know, what God wants us to know in this text. And for that, I'm very excited. I'm always excited to discover that. Uh, and you'll learn really fast that the goal of this chapter is in no way, and you'll hear that from me, no way to predict. I mean, it's crystal clear in the text, no one knows when this is going to happen. So this is not a chapter a that's just filled with a bunch of esoteric information designed to get you to predict something. It's designed to prepare you for something. Far better to be prepared when it happens than to know when it happens, according to this text. So we need to understand what that means. We're talking about 19 imperatives. 25 personal verbs, plural verbs. There's a message in here for us. Now, here's the thing that I want to say to you, and then we're going to just start this chapter. There has to be, in order to understand everything Mark has said up to now about your discipleship and your following him, there has to be an eschatological dimension to your faith to live how Jesus wanted you to live. 
There ha- and when I say eschatological, I want you to get used to accustomed to that term. It just means the study of last, it's just last things. There has to be a picture of what's going to happen in the end in order for you to, to live the way Jesus actually called you to live. Because right now, if we ask about our spiritual lives, you say, yeah, living for Jesus is really hard. Sometimes it's really, really hard. You know what? One of the reasons why it's really hard for us is because we don't think about the end enough. And that's what this text would tell you. So if you were sitting out there saying, yeah, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm doing my best. I'm, uh, I'm struggling. Well, maybe you need a better picture of the end. You need a better picture of the end in order to live how Jesus has asked us to live. That has to be our motivation for going into this chapter. Because remember what he says? Did you hear this little line in there squeezed in there just to... Within, within, within the first 10 verses. He that endures to the end will be what? Saved. You got to get all the way to the end. And if you don't have a good picture of the end, you'll never last. You'll never last. It's heavy, very heavy. That's page one. You ready? All right. Here we go. There's a couple of things that I want to put in your head that are good pictures uh, before we dive into all of the hard stuff here in the coming weeks. Here's the picture that I'd like you to have in your head of what Mark 13 is doing. Because remember, we're reading, somebody's writing this book. So Mark 13 just can't be pulled out and said, hey, let's just jam it down the future and figure it out. Let's figure out what Mark is trying to say to us. Remember, when you get to chapter 11, we enter the last week of Jesus' life. He's in the temple. The temple is the priority. So it's the, it's, the, it's the most important thing here, and it becomes important here. Right here, on both sides of this. So he predicts, remember, Jesus, when he comes in, he predicts the fig tree, which he'll use that fig tree illustration. Did you hear the fig tree illustration in Mark 13? Remember, he used it here, too, to describe the temple about to be cursed. So you've got that. And Jesus is ending his public ministry here. And then after chapter 13, we'll enter his, the passion of Christ. When we talk about the passion of Christ, we mean the, de- the trial, the death, and the resurrection. So we're going to enter into the the... the The death of Christ. So this text becomes the bridge to that. And the temple figures prominently. we got to say, why? What what, what is this a bridge to? And I think you're going to just really, it's just going to help you understand this text. Remember right at the end, we spent a little time on understanding right before the end of chapter 12, before we get into this bridge. Who is Jesus? Remember the discussion about whether he was David's son or God's son? He's not just David's son, he's God's son. So whatever you were expecting in terms of the Messiah, he's far greater than just a descendant of David. He's God's son. That means whatever the Messiah was promised to do, it's far bigger than you could grasp. Because look who's coming to do it, the son. Now when you get... Past chapter 13. And remember, this is in the context of the temple. It's in the context of the temple. You get to Mark, through Mark chapter 13 and you get here. There's only one other mention of the temple after chapter 13. 
And it's after Christ dies and the curtain is ripped. That's your allusion back to the temple. The curtain is completely ripped in the Holy of Holies, announcing an an entirely new way to God based on the death of Jesus Christ. And guess what happens right after that verse? Mark 15, 38. The curtain is ripped and the centurion notices Jesus on the cross and says, surely this was who? God's son. Do you see the connection there? Here's the connection and the importance of the bridge. We will not need the temple anymore because we're going to, we're going over the temple and now Christ is going to become the temple. Christ will become the place where you meet God now. There won't need to be a temple. Isn't that incredible? That's what Mark is trying to do. Now, that bridge is saying so much about this. So here, he, Jesus has replaced the temple. Matthew twelve six says this, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is saying, it's me. And remember, they don't see it. They do not make this connection. But it's what Mark wants us to see. And we got to make sure we're seeing what Mark wants to see it, wants us to see about Jesus. Remember in John chapter 2? Remember, uh, just so you know this, Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his, his last week of his life. He also cleansed it, remember, at the very beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. One of the first things he did after he turns water into wine, he cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. He cleanses the temple at the very and at and that first cleansing. Do you remember what he says? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He was describing himself as the temple. Do you know what Mark is saying? Mark's talking about temple replacement theology. He's saying Jesus is the temple now. You don't need this place anymore. Wow. Now that does not knock you off your feet. It would have blown these people away. And I want to show you how it should knock you off your feet. Knock us off our feet. So what we have to figure out is, how do we get to this? Because that's what's absolutely critical. How do we get? And why do we have to get here? Like, why does Mark have to do this phenomenal literary brilliance? To get us to the death of Christ. Why is it so critical in Mark's message? Why, why a third of the book is basically written to this subject right here? The last week of Jesus' life. You've got to figure out why that is. And here's the thing. Here's the thing Jesus wants you to know. And it's clear in the text. It's clear in the whole feeling of where we are right now. Are you, are you having fun? Are you guys having fun right now? Because I'm like loving. Are you loving this? Ah. Oh. I got chills. Here's why. Here's what he wants you to know as a disciple, because this is what's going to matter to you when you leave here this morning. <laughs> it is not going to be easy for you to get here. It'd be as easy as me just saying, can I just crucify you right now? But... But 
It is reality. It will not be the easiest thing to get to this reality, but it is reality. So you better go with it. And see, that's the decision that faces every the disciple when they first come to Christ and hear about him. And even after they've been following him for a little while, some days you just got to go, this is going to hurt, but I got to do it. Right? This is really going to hurt, but I've got to do it. And that's what Mark is trying to get you to see. That's why we got to get here. We've got to get here. And there are things that happen here that is going to explain why it's the reality. And so we got to get started, and we're already behind. Uh, we've been behind for years. Okay, so now let's get into chapter 13. Okay, so 13 starts. As Jesus was going out of the temple, and we'll, we'll do this a little faster than I thought. He's going out of the temple courts. One of his disciples says to him, teacher, look. Remember, Mark's big on looking, seeing, and watching it's amazing that out of the mouth of one of the disciples, something he says that's totally understandable at one level, completely misses everything Jesus has said up to this point. That's why you've got to get to here. Jesus is going to show you how hard it is to get to there from here. And, and the disciple immediately demonstrates that because his eyes can't see what Jesus sees. And if you can't see what Jesus sees, if you can't see the end, you'll never make it there. You'll never endure there. Do you see these tremendous stones, he says, in these buildings? Let's just go ahead and read both. Jesus says to him, do you see these great buildings? I love that question. Because, yes. Because Jesus is trying to say, you know, these buildings... That your eye just can't help but focus on? Not one stone will be left on another. They're going to be torn down. Now, how does that start all of this Mark 13 hoopla? Well, let's get into that. Jesus leaves the temple. Jesus leaves the temple. And anyone who knows their Old Testament well, and these people would have understood it. When Jesus leaves this temple, he's never coming back to this temple. He doesn't come back to this temple one more time. This would be a picture, symbolic act of judgment. He's cursed it in the fig tree. And chapter 13 is about to pronounce and, and predict its demise. Jesus leaves it as an act of judgment. And it recalls Ezekiel chapter 9. I won't spend a whole lot of time here. But you remember in Ezekiel, in Solomon's temple, when, when the glory of God slowly left the temple. It was over the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. And then it got to the threshold that overlooked the Holy of Holies. And then it got out by the gate. And then it hovered there. This is the presence of God slowly and reluctantly leaving the temple because they were so idolatrous and sinful. And then it gets all the way. Guess where it ends up? It leaves the gate, gets to the Mount of Olives, and sits there and stops as if I don't want to go, but I got to go. And from the Mount of Olives, it goes up. And if you would think about Acts, you say, well, if the glory of God left then, when is it coming back? Well, it comes back in Jesus Christ. It comes back when he comes the first time because John says the glory of God, that Jesus was the glory of God coming. And then in Acts... 
When Jesus is ascended into heaven, do you remember what they say to him? Right there on the Mount of Olives, he's ascended. And then the, the, the angels say to the disciples, he's going to come right back to this very spot. So the Mount of Olives is a critical spot of the coming and going of the glory in the presence of God. And that would have come to mind as Jesus walks away from that temple. It's the glory of God leaving the temple. It's, it's, it's basically saying this, God's not here anymore. God's not here anymore. You say, well, how are we going to relate to God now? What are we going to do? And so you got to see that truth. And that truth was a very difficult truth for them to grasp. I'm going to show you why it's hard for you too, but it was really hard for them to imagine God not being a part of all of the temple activity. Now, here's the reason why it is so hard to imagine. Uh, because it just looks so impressive. It just looks so impressive. It catches your eye. It catches your eye. Do you remember what Jesus was saying at the end of chapter 12 before we got into chapter 13? I know, guys. Hey, he's sitting across and he's looking at the treasure. And he goes, look at all these people. They, they, just, they all have so much stuff. They're all putting in so much in the temple. They all do all these ritual things. I want you to notice the widow over there because no one's paying any attention to her at all. That's a picture of these people. They're doing all this religious activity, but they cannot see me because I'm like the widow. I'm sitting in this temple and nobody notices me. No one notices me. Because they're enamored with the temple. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like. You want to know why it's so hard for you to follow me? Because, you, because your eyes, I don't catch your eyes. I'm not eye candy. That's what Jesus said. I'm not eye candy. I know I'm not. That's why, you, that's why you've got to focus. Or you will miss it. Because you'll be enamored with the big stuff. Remember the discussion about the big hat and the big ca- and no cattle? Big hat, no cattle. Big hat, you look like you have a lot. You have nothing. That's what the temple is. It looks like it has a lot. It has nothing. And see, it is this comment that literally launches chapter 13. We better understand what Jesus is saying. It looks great, but it's not real. And by the way, let me tell you something about Herod's temple. Just so you understand what he was looking at. Because I know you probably don't. Because none of us can really grasp how impressive this building was. Nothing in the Mediterranean was anything like it. Okay? Uh, Herod was obsessed with grandeur. What you're seeing right now, what he's looking at right there, the temple was only half built. It started in 20 B.C. This is A.D. 33 B.C. Temple doesn't get fully built until about 63, 64 A.D. That means he's only looking at a half-built temple and he's still overwhelmed by it. Herod enlarged it and sort of gaudied it up. It was incredible. All right? It was a campus, 35 acres. Imagine 112 football fields fitting into this thing. It was a massive thing. In fact, some people said, when they found the rocks, you know, Josephus, 40 foot long, 
stones when they uncovered this thing. You talk about the stones he's looking at. Imagine a 40 foot long stone, one single stone. Okay. That's 11 feet high and 14 feet wide and weighs a hundred tons. One rock. It was incredible. An incredible thing. One rabbi actually said this about it. He who has not seen the temple in all its splendor has never seen a beautiful building. Oh, it was eye-catching. And Jesus' point is really is this. He goes, I know I don't catch people's eye. I'm like the widow inside the temple. And that's why Jesus says this. Uh, You see that building? Uh, You do, do you? You see that great building? I know you see that great building. You see that great building. I want you to know this thing you can't take your eye off of. These stones you love so much will be utterly devastated. This is Old Testament language. This is Old Testament language. Graphic destruction. One stone won't be left on another. In other words, you won't know that thing was here. You won't know there was a building. There'll be nothing to suggest there was a construction. Even here. This thing you see. What you see, Jesus is saying, will not last. So don't get enamored by it. Now you say, how does that connect to everything we're just talking about, discipleship and stuff like that? Well, this word right here. As soon as you hear the word great and you're reading Mark in one sitting, what do you think of? You can't help but think of... Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. That doesn't look good. That doesn't feel good. Who wants to be a servant when they can be great? You see what I mean? Jesus is trying to say by the buildings, following me is really difficult because what I call greatness, you do not see as greatness. You're looking at this building and you think it's great. And in my kingdom, the way I see reality, that's not what greatness is. Greatness is very easy to miss in my kingdom, just like the widow. Just like me. It's easy to miss. You know what it made me think of, and I couldn't help myself here, was, was the Titanic. Uh, over a century ago, right? And, and it's still somehow... This, this tragedy, okay, it's, it's, it, what the Titanic represents is something bigger than just a tragedy, even though it was a horrible tragedy. It represents something bigger in the human reality of tragedy. Just human, humankind, not just sort of an individual. Humankind does the same thing. Their ingenuity. They, have, they build things and they construct realities and they think they're so big and they get so puffed up and proud about them. And that was the Titanic. That's what has made it last this long is the sheer hubris, the pride that went into it. This thing's practically unsinkable, they said. We have absolute confidence in the Titanic. God himself couldn't sink this ship. You see, 
We are enamored with our own constructions. We are like Herod. We build our way and we think it's the end all. And God says, what you're constructing in your life, in your head, is going to be demolished. It won't even look like someone attempted to build it. That's what he's saying. Calvin wrote, the vast size and wealth of the temple hung like a veil before the eyes of the disciples, preventing them from elevating their faith to the true reign of Christ, that those things which occupy their attention will quickly perish. Jesus says, if you try to build your own monument, it will be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss that message. Okay, so I have one page left, and I have seven minutes. We're averaging about ten minutes a page. Here's how I want to conclude this. I want to get us wrapped around this thing. Why do we have to get to here? Well... We just saw it. You're doomed if you don't. It's not an easy road, but it's so real. It's, it's realer than everything you've built and everything you have and everything you've seen and everything you want. And if you don't get there somehow, it won't be easy, but it's real. That's what Mark is saying. It won't be easy, but it's real. I know what you think of greatness. I'm telling you it's something else. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. If you can't miss the fact. You can't miss the fact. That my religion, my religious ideas of what it means to relate to God. Mean nothing to God. I don't care how elaborate they are. I don't care how long you've constructed them. I don't care how special they are to you or who handed them down to you. It doesn't matter. Jesus will flat walk away from any religious thing you've constructed. He'll walk away from it and doom it. Now, that's overwhelming to hear. You say, now that I'm catching on to. I didn't see the temple. So the fact that God would construct or deconstruct that is no big deal to me. But the fact that you're telling me that everything I've learned in my life and everything I instinctively understand about what it means to be a good person and how I feel about relating to God on my terms and building my own spiritual temple. If you're telling me God's going to deconstruct that and doom it, it's doomed. That's what I'm saying. So that's the reason that you have to cross this bridge, see, and get to the death of Christ. And here's, here, here it is. It's just this beautiful and this simple. Because the temple, because it's doomed to judgment, because I am doomed to judgment in everything I've constructed about what it means to build a good life and a relationship to God, Christ's death is my only hope. The reason I've got to get here is because it's my only hope. See, this temple's going to be destroyed. Everything I construct is going to be destroyed. But Jesus becomes the new temple, and he rises from the dead. Beyond that, forget that. 
The curtain is torn. The temple's wide open. Access to God comes in through another way. It's not the building anymore. It's not anything I construct. And here's what's so beautiful about it. Here's the beautiful thing. Right before, because I know you're offended, that God is going to doom. And when you read Mark 13, you go, oh my goodness, look at the horror. Uh, Mark's going to get you over here and say, before the sun gets dark in the future, before the moon's light goes out, before darkness covers the earth, before it quakes violently, and the sun comes and judgment appears, long before that happens, I will judge my son for you on the cross. And the sun will go out. The sun will darken. The whole world will become dark. The earth will quake violently. And my son will take judgment for you. Long before I deconstruct your reality, I will reconstruct it here first. And I will judge my son for your sin. And not only your sin... Your hard work at crafting your own religion and ideas about what it means to relate to me. I'll doom those. Yes. But my son will take the judgment for you. That's the first thing. That's why you got to get here. That's why Mark's got to get you here. Because if you're, if you're relying on anything but Jesus Christ, you're doomed. The reason God's son needed to come was because someone had to take that judgment who was worthy of it. And he does. So the sun is better than the temple. And see, until you see the sun as better than anything you've concocted, you will not come to Jesus. Here's the second thing and the final thing. Why do we have to get to the passion? There's one other reason. And Mark has already alluded to it. This is such a difficult journey. You remember what Jesus has taught us in the book of Mark? That you've got to... uh, Suffering comes before what? Suffering comes before glory. If you're going to buy in to what Jesus is going to tell you to do this week, forgive someone who you don't think deserves it. Give something that you'd rather hold on to that makes you feel secure, that makes you feel accomplished. If you're going to buy into that servanthood, stuff there better be vindication for it and here's what jesus is trying to say by all of mark chapter 13 especially as we get to this text unless jesus goes to the cross and dies which is the servanthood part it's the suffering part 
Well, then we're all asking the question, if you're in Mark's reading, if you're listening to it in Mark, you're going, well, where's the glory? Where? Show me the glory. (laughs) Hello? God, show me the glory. Where's the glory at? Because I don't see any glory in giving up things here. I don't see any glory in following you to the death. Where is it? What does Mark chapter 13 and verse 36 say? That's actually 26. Then everyone will see the Son of Man arriving in the clouds with great power and what? Glory. So Christ is going to say, let me show you how to go to the cross and die. And by rising from the dead, I'll vindicate my death. And when I come back, like when is, when is our, our cost When is the glory going to be revealed? Glory is not going to be revealed until he comes back the next time. That's why you've got to hear the hard message of Mark chapter 13. Because if you don't live in the light of that future coming, you won't see the glory well enough to pay the price to follow him now. And you won't do what Mark says in that text is so critical. Endure all the way to the end. How are you ever going to make it? How are any of us going to make it? If we don't have a real clear picture of that second coming, because that's the vindication. That's why we need an eschatological dimension to our faith. Or we won't pay the price. This You won't pay the price tonight. You won't pay it tomorrow morning. If you don't see that clearly and buy into it fully, because tomorrow morning your eyes will catch the beauty of something. Won't it? It'll catch the beauty of something and knock you off track that fast. That's why Jesus says, keep your eyes to the east where I'm going to come. Because if you don't, you won't make it to the end. And according to Mark and according to Jesus, you've got to make it to the end. To be saved. I'm going to let that just hang right over your head for a while. And you, you, you gnaw on that all week. About what that means and looks like for you. If you haven't walked away from religion and come to Christ fully. You better get to it. Because there's not one thing you've constructed that's going to last. And as a disciple, if you intend to make it all the way to the end. It may just be the end of your life. Because he may not come back. Just to the end of your life. And I'm going to tell you, that's not easy. But if you're going to make it to the end, you better have a clear picture of his return. And Mark 13 is going to help us do that. All right, I had another thing I wanted to do, but I don't have time for it. And that's okay. Yeah, I'll just get us out of here now. Otherwise, if I open, if I start, we're dead. If I start, we're dead. Hey, what a word from God. What a word from God. Father, just in awe of your word, of everything you came to do, 
And in our hearts, we know it, Lord. In our hearts, we know it. I pray for a person in here, Lord, who's sort of got uh, some hope in in their religiosity. In their eyes. They're impressed with themselves. And anyone impressed with themselves, you'll walk away from. And that's a scary reality. So I pray they'll stop dead in their tracks, Lord, and walk out of that temple, walk out of that construction, whatever it is, those religious endeavors, and come to you fast. And then finally, I pray for the majority of us in here, Lord, who are doing our best to follow you. We love you. Help us to look forward to your coming so that we will make, we will make the sacrifices and live the way you've called us to live. Because we want to last, Father. We want to make it all the way to the end. We want what you ultimately are offering. Only you can provide it. Only you died. Only you took our judgment. Only you are coming back. Father, our sole hope in every way is in you. Help us to remember that this week. When, When tough times come. In Jesus' name, amen.